So good morning. My name, is, again, is Daniel Henry. Um, we've been going here about two years now with me and my wife. And uh, yeah, we just want to welcome you this morning, um, all the members of Second City Church and any visitors you might have. Um, and also I want to say thank you. Um, a lot of you helped us go back to Sierra Leone for a month last year. Um, and a lot, a lot of today's message is going to be uh, fruit from that trip. Um, so, yeah, if this message impacts anyone, um, those of you that helped support us through prayer um, and through giving, through words of encouragement, um, you guys are co-laborers in this message, um, so thank you. Um, Tim Dearborn, uh, he was the director of uh, World Vision for about 10 years. He directed um, yeah, their faith and development department, and he would help send out their short-term mission trip teams. And so he put a lot of thought into how to send short-term teams well and, and how to help those uh, yeah, the people going on uh, mission trip teams. And one thing he said about a good mission trip is it throws you into a completely different context and causes you to ask questions uh, that you wouldn't ask uh, in, in your comfort back home. And the difference between a good mission trip, a life-changing mission trip, and just a good experience that you had one time is, ha- is having the integrity to continue to ask those questions when you get back to the comfort of your home. Uh, how many people here have ever been on a mission trip before? Oh, a lot of people. I know, yeah, some people went uh, to the Dominican Republic. Um, and, um, yeah, I want you to think about, were there any things that that trip caused you to question? Any questions that God started to stir in your heart through that trip when he brought you out of your comfort zone? Um, sometimes those questions can be like a talent that God entrusts to us, just like he gave all his servants different talents. I want to encourage you, you know, not to bury those questions in the ground. Uh, but but keep them, hold on to them, continue to wrestle with those questions. As I'm starting this internship with Moody, that's going to be one of the big focuses of my internship is just uh, meeting with people um, that have had some experiences in ministry and are trying to figure out what does God want me to do with this Um, and to sit down and talk talk through some of those questions with them. Um, Not necessarily to give them the answers, but just to be a sounding board as they're trying to process it. Um, And so if... if, um, yeah, if you've had experience on a mission trip, you'd love to talk about it. I would love to sit down with you sometime over, uh, over a meal or over coffee and just hear about your experience and kind of, yeah, what God stirred in you on that trip. Um, you guys can be praying for my wife. Um, God stirred some stuff in her um, as she was serving God in Sierra Leone. Um, she's studying, she started studying pre-counseling um, at Moody Bible Institute, and she's been asking some, a lot of questions about what counseling looks like, what Christian counseling looks like in Sierra Leone. Um, some of what she's learning here, it's, it's, it's based for our culture, which is more individualistic, um, whereas Sierra Leone's a lot more of a community-focused culture. So she's wondering, well, what will look the same? What will look the different? Um, how, what will look the same and what will look different in my culture, where my culture is probably a lot more spiritually-minded um, than the Western culture, which is more secular? Um, and so she's, she's going and she's getting this education. She fi- just finished a lot of her general education classes and so this next semester, she's going to be getting deep into her counseling classes. And she's got a lot of questions she's going to spend the next semester wrestling with, trying to figure out how does this apply um, in West Africa? How is it different, apply different in West Africa than it would here in the United States? Um, and pray for me, too. I've spent a lot of time the past year wrestling with questions that were raised on that trip last summer. Um, and I'm going to continue to wrestle with it. This next semester, I'm going to be taking a theology of sexuality, and ministry to women in pain at uh, Moody Bible Institute. And I'm going to be using those classes to continue to wrestle with some of the questions that you're going to hear this morning um, that I've been asking and and, um, just praying about, thinking about, searching for answers to uh, this past year at Moody. Um, But before I get get into those questions, I just want to share the story that kind of was the the seed of these questions. 
Um, so me and Ami, we, we were in Sierra Leone. I was there for six years um, with an organization called Word Made Flesh. We lived in a community called Crew Bay, which is a community that exists in the biggest slum in Sierra Leone. Um, we would do youth mentoring. We would do good news clubs for kids. Um, I was in charge of the youth mentoring program for a while. We did after-school tutoring. Um, but the last two years of, uh, that I was there, uh, the focus started to switch. Um, I was living in, in the slum, um, and I got to know a lot of my neighbors. And when I got married to my wife and she moved in, we started reaching out more to some of the girls in our neighborhood. And we started finding out more and more about their stories and just how many of them had been abused, um, how, many of, yeah, how many of them had been sexually exploited, and just how widespread it was in the community. And so we started trying to figure out how to help these girls. Um, so sometimes that meant walking, some of them, sometimes that meant going with them to the police station to file a police report or going to a health clinic to get a rape kit done. Uh, it meant making sure that they were taking their medicine um, after that they got from doctors or nurses. Uh, trying to do some counseling with them, trying to find uh, local counselors that could meet with them and helping them get to those appointments. Uh, and some of them, uh, they came and lived with us, um, kind of became like our foster daughters, and they, they would stay in our parlor. Some would stay there for a long time, some just for a weekend, some would just come over for a meal, um, but opening our home up to these girls. And then, um, and then we realized that there was just so much more we had to learn um, about how to minister to girls that had been sexually exploited uh, the ways that they had. And so we ended up coming back to Moody, where I'm studying ministry to victims of sexual exploitation, and and my wife is studying pre-counseling so we can go back um, just better equipped to help uh, serve these girls in Sierra Leone. Um, but when we went back this last summer, um, one thing that really shook me on the trip uh, was that one of the girls that we've been working with, I'd known her since she was about 11. Um, and this, yeah, when I first met her, she had been living, uh, she, she had a house, but her mom would, would go out and lots of times lock the door. And so sometimes like at night, you know, it'd be one in the morning and she'd be sleeping outside on the street under the window of my house. And uh, sometimes boys would uh, come by and be giving her a hard time, and I'd like, yell at them to leave her alone and stuff. Um, and after me and my wife got married, sometimes she'd come and sleep in our parlor instead. Um, and so we, we built a relationship with this girl. Uh, she started doing better in school. And I really watched her grow into this much more strong, much more confident woman. Um, but, but then when we left, after we left, we found out that she was having a hard time with school. Like the, the year, that school year before we had come back, um, she almost was, you know, she was thinking about dropping out of school, just giving up on everything. And so when we were there, we were asking her, like, what, what's going on, trying to figure out what, um, what, what was happening. And, uh, we, and she, yeah, she sat down, and she really didn't want to talk, but, you know, you know we love you, we want to be able to, we want to help you. I want to know how we can be praying for you, you know we pray for you. And as we were talking with her, I just watched this, what had become this strong, confident woman uh, just kind of like shrink, kind of like inward, like you could, just her whole body um, posture changed, and I just watched her change into that scared little 11-year-old girl that I'd first met. And uh, she told us the story about um, when she was nine years old um, and when she'd run away from home and she went to a policeman to help her and the policeman raped her instead. And, um, and she, was, she was sobbing and... Uh, she had never told us this story before. We'd known her for several years, and she'd never told us. Um, after t- and after telling us this story, she, she said, I, can you, do you guys still love me? Like, I, was, I was scared to tell you because I was afraid, like, if you knew I wasn't a virgin, you might not love me. And you know, we're like, of course we love you. That was our first response, is just to reassure her that we loved her, to, to hold her, to pray for her and stuff. Um, but also, I was like, why would she think that? Like, I mean, we had shared so many meals. 
with her. We, let, we welcomed her into our home. We would do devotions with her. We would pray for her. Like, why would she think that we wouldn't love her just because just of that? And then I thought about the way sometimes um, certain yeah, things in the culture, the way they let women who weren't virgins got treated. Um, it was very common for a, a, parent, a family to really support a girl until they found out that in her school, until they found out she'd lost her virginity, and then they thought, well, she's probably going to get pregnant and have to drop out anyway. So let, with our limited resources, let's, let's invest them somewhere else. Um, there were messages sometimes that it, you'd hear in, in churches by pastors. Uh, there were messages um, within Islam, which is the major religion in Sierra Leone, uh, and just different messages um, that I could, I could see. And even I was thinking about uh, messages that I've, I've heard growing up in, in purity culture. Um, Jesus, you know, when he's talking about woe to these Pharisees, uh, woe to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much the son, or twice as much a child of hell as yourself. And I think sometimes, yeah, some of the stuff that maybe I heard is, uh, about purity culture as a youth, missionaries brought that over and it was, it was brought into the church. And I, I, would, I would hear messages, um, yeah, about uh, yeah, basically blaming the girl whenever a guy was tempted. And I, I would think about, oh yeah, I've heard those messages preached by pastors here in Sierra Leone. And I've heard those messages in America as well. And this could be part of the reason why she might think, oh, maybe we would have blamed her. Um, and, and so I started to think, and Ami was supposed to do the purity talk that summer. Um, we, we went away for a week to camp, to camp with them, and there was a time where they would separate the guys and the girls. So we thought, like, how can we give a better purity talk? Um, and so we started asking some of these questions, and so some of this message is going to come out of what we, what we discovered um, that week and some what I've been discovering this past year as I've continued to wrestle um, how we can talk better um, about, about purity. Um, so how many people here grew up in, like, it was like a youth in the 90s? All right, so how many of you guys got like a purity talk either in your youth group or at a summer camp? All right, so there, there, were some, there were some purity illustrations that tended to come up a lot. Uh, one of the ones um, I think was more directed towards the girls was the picture of this flower. And they'd start off with this flower, and then like every time you cross some kind of purity line, they'd peel off a petal. And then pretty, and at the end of the illustration, you'd have this stem that nobody wanted, right? Anyone, ever, anyone familiar with that one? Or as a junior high boy, I remember, I think this was the first purity illustration I heard, it was poop brownies. So our, our small group leader brought out this tray of brownies and said, who wants brownies? And we're all like, we're, you know, we're, we love sugar because we're junior high boys, and we're like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, what if I told you there was just a little bit of poop in these brownies? Would you still want it? And then we're like, oh, no. And, and that, was, that was the illustration. Like, that, that's the same. Like, who would want you if, yeah, if, if you're like, yeah, if you start behaving impure, that, that's the way it's going to be. You know, so you have to maintain your purity so people will want you like how you want the brownies if, they're, if they don't have poop in them and stuff. Um, and it, there were other illustrations. There was one about tape um, where tape would get stuck on an arm and they'd, pe- and they'd peel it off until like, it wouldn't stick to anything. And it was, but you always had these illustrations where something started off good and then uh, through bad choices became use- useless, worthless, and unwanted. Um, and, th- and those are horrible illustrations <laughs> um, for youth who are trying to figure out who am I to think that maybe, oh, maybe if I've looked at pornography or maybe if I've, you know, kissed a boy or let a boy kiss me or maybe if I haven't dressed modestly enough, that I'm slowly losing my value and slowly becoming unwanted by the opposite sex. Um, and the, yeah, these are illustrations that lead a lot, can lead to a lot of shame. And when I, when I talk about shame, I took this class uh, this last semester at Moody on shame. Um, it was based on some curriculum by Brene Brown. 
and she loves to define words. So I'm going to break down some of her definition about what is shame and what isn't shame um, for you right now. Um, and I think that's going to help as we continue to go forward. So she says, shame is the intensely painful feeling of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of connecting and belonging. And I think like, that, that so resonates with some of the illustrations I heard about purity growing up. Um, but she, she also wants to distinguish between, um, between shame and other feelings such as guilt. And so like, the idea of the feeling of believing um, that we're flawed was important. Um, it's, it's key to her understanding of shame. She talks about how there's this initial feeling of feeling ashamed, and then based on the, uh, the beliefs we attach to it is where we go next. So when you, f- you first have that experience and you feel a sense of feeling ashamed, if, so like if something bad happens and you, uh, you have this experience where you're feeling ashamed and you, you believe that you're bad, then that's going to lead into, it's going to deepen into shame. But if you're able to say, okay, I did something bad or I made a mistake, uh, then you're able to believe that maybe I'm guilty of something, but that can be taken care of. Uh, she also talks about um, shame versus humiliation. If something negative happens to us and we feel ashamed, if we believe we deserve it, then it deepens into shame. And if we believe we don't deserve it, um, uh, then we experience that as humiliation. Um, and so like, she gave like, the example of, um, yeah, if, like, like sometimes some of the missionaries I've talked to in India, it's very common. Uh, they've, all, they've all had experiences of being on the subway and some man would just come up and grope them on the subway. And so at that moment, if they, if they thought, well, it was something I, w- I did something, I, it must have been the way I dressed, it must have been the way I behaved, but I must have deserved that touch, that would, then they would feel a sense of shame. But if they were able to say, like, no, I don't deserve that, like, I don't deserve to have a man grab me like that, then it, 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 it might still feel humiliating, but they're able to say it wasn't my fault and not take it upon themselves. Um, and then the other, the other thing she talks about is the difference between uh, shame and humiliation. Or, sorry, and embarrassment. Um, so if, we, if something happens to us um, and we're able to think, like, well, that happens to everyone, uh, we, t- we tend to feel more embarrassed. Um, like Ami was telling me a story yesterday. Um, she, she works at Moody um, in the custodian apartment, and they, they pray every day before they go and they start to work. And so, uh, yeah, they got together, they talked about what they're going to do that day, and then um, they asked someone to pray. And so everyone quieted down. The guy got ready to pray. And then just as he started praying, he farted. And everyone started laughing. Like, they had to, like, they had to get everyone quieted down so they could continue the prayer. But, you know, that's some, it's embarrassing, but you kind of think, well, yeah, that's happened to other people before. And so you don't feel alone in that. It's not like, oh, I'm the only one that ex- experienced this. And so you, can, you feel embarrassed, but you don't feel maybe a deep sense of shame because it's, yeah, because you feel... Like, it's a shared experience with a lot of people. Um, so, so when she's talking about shame, she's talking about something that uh, increases when we believe these, nev- these negative experiences, when they isolate us. We feel like maybe we're the only one that's been through this. No one else has. Um, we believe it's a core part of our identity. And also, we believe it's something we deserved. Um, so, Brene Brown also says a shame that it corrodes a piece of us that believes we are capable of change. Um, and that leads, right, that leads right back to these purity illustrations. I mean, once you get, you know, if, if you mixed poop into ba- brownie batter and then you baked it, like there's no way to get the poop out of the brownie. You know, once you take all those petals off of the stem, yeah, I don't know any way to put those petals back on the stem and make it a beautiful flower again. So we were constantly given these, Im- these illustrations that once it happens, um, yeah, it, you're incapable of change. You're incapable of getting that back. 
Um, and that, that's not the gospel. Like, first of all, the gospel isn't that we start off good and then have to follow these set of laws in order to, remain, to stay good. Um, so I want to look at three examples of purity from Scripture uh, that I, I think um, offer us better pictures. Uh, so the first two we'll see in Malachi chapter 3. Uh, Malachi, he's prophesying about Jesus, and he says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and he is like fuller's soap. Um, yeah, so he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. He will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. So, and then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust against aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So we've got this image of God coming as a judge, but before he comes as a judge, he also comes as this refiner um, and also as, as this uh, launderer, this launderer's soap. Um, and so we have these images of, um, one, a cleansed cloth, and two, of refined gold. So you have, the, you have, you have an idea, like, you can, cloth can get stained, um, but there's also a way to get that stain out and get it clean again. Um, this is something that I, I've seen more in Sierra Leone than, I, than here. Like here we throw our, our clothes into a machine and it doesn't always get the stain out. But in Sierra Leone, they wash, they wash things by hand. Um, you know, they, they get the soap and, and I would walk through Crew Bay, this slum, and especially in the rainy season, you know, I'd come home all muddy and stuff. Sometimes I'd go out, wear these white pants, come home mud all over it. And Ami would take the soap and she'd just be able to work it and I'd get them like, yeah, just spotless white bag. And I'm like, how did you do that? Because that would never work in a machine in America. Um, and, but, but she was able to get these stains out. Uh, the other thing is re- refined gold. I think sometimes we think, when we think about pure gold, we think about the end product and we don't think about the process. You know, when you start with gold, you know, you're digging in the dirt and then you pull something up and it's got dirt and it's got dross mixed in it. And then, there's this, then you have the goldsmith and there's this whole process of refining um, where the dross is removed and the dirt is removed before you get um, the, the pure gold. Um, and, yeah, and Jesus, yeah, this illustration from Malachi continues in Revelation. Um, so, yeah, Malachi was prophesying about um, Jesus coming, and then in Revelation, Jesus is actually talking to the church. Uh, he, talks, uh, he says, You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, you say. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think sometimes purity, pure, purity culture can block our ears to what the Spirit's trying to say. Like, you have this God that's refining gold. You know, what, whatever, when you come to him, whatever dross and dirt there may be in your life, you know, if, if you'll sit with this master goldsmith, you know, he, 
he, he would love to just sit with you and, and pull some of that guilt, clean that guilt out of your life, clean that sense of um, shame out of your life. Um, yeah, he's, he's like that, uh, that master laundress, th- those strong African women with their strong hands that can just get stains out of everything. You know, that, that's what God's like. You know, he's, he doesn't just impersonally throw it in a machine, press a button, but, you know, just like the women sit there and they're looking and they're trying to figure it out, and they, get, and they do, they get it out. He's like, if you will put yourself in my hands, sometimes it's going to be rough, you know, as I'm rubbing, you know, as I'm agitating, it's going to be rough, but I can get those stains out if you, if you will just sit in my hands. Uh, and then, um, yeah, David, David goes uh, with this image in Psalm 51. This, some of you guys probably know this psalm. Uh, but it's uh, Psalm 51, it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David had been hiding this sin and hiding this sin, and finally um, Nathan exposed it. And so he goes, to, he goes to God and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash away all the iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judged in your judgment. Um, Okay, go to the next slide. It says, Behold, I brought forth an iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. So David doesn't have this idea that now that because this has happened, now, um, yeah, now there's nothing that can happen to remove this stain. He's, like, he's acknowledging, okay, there is this stain in my life. Because of what I did with Bathsheba, like, I've been stained by guilt. But if I come to you, I know that you can wash me. And yeah, if, if you do, then I'll teach other transgressors, other people that are guilty, that have committed sins, that you can wash them as well. You know, I'll, I'll share my story so they, they believe that just how you blotted out my sin, you know, if they place themselves in your hands, that you'll blot out their sin as well. And he says, Deliver me from the guilt of my bloodshed. Oh God, you are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. And so we have this God um, yeah, that cleanses us from guilt, that, um, that can cleanse us from shame. Um, but also, like, when we, I believe when we have that sense of humiliation, I think lots of times we talk about how God washes away our sins. But also when we've been sinned against, uh, God's going to cleanse us. Like, sometimes we carry this sense of false guilt or false shame. Uh, you know, there, there's kids out there whose parents beat them, and they thought, it's because I was a bad kid. I deserved that. Um, you know, there, there's women that have been sexually assaulted, and because of what they learned in, uh, about modesty, they thought, oh, it was of the, it's my fault because of the way I dressed. Or I, I must have done something immodest myself that caused, this, uh, that caused this abuse, that caused this assault to happen to me. 
Um, and, and Jesus, um, I, yeah, I, I think he comes to free us from that as well. Let's see where, okay, there we go. Um, Isaiah, in uh, Isaiah 61, he's, he's speaking about Jesus. Um, Jesus, in, in fact, you know, he takes this passage, he reads it, and says, this has been fulfilled in your presence. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness uh, the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness and a planting of our Lord for the display of his splendor. And then in verse 7, it says, Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion of the land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward people and make an everlasting covenant with them. And I, I, be- I believe that, yes, when we get there, God's like people that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they're going to. They're going to know that Jesus bore their guilt on the cross, and so that's not on them. But I think there's some people that have spent their life suffering, thinking, it was my fault that my parents got a divorce. If I wasn't such a naughty child, my parents would have got a divorce. And they're going to be washed clean of that shame. Jesus is going to say, that was never your responsibility. That was your parents' choice. You know, or he's going to say to kids, it wasn't your fault um, when, your parent, or when your dad lost his temper. You know, he's going to say to those women, it wasn't your fault when that man assaulted you. I, I think there are, there, are, um, there are women, there are children, there, there are people bearing a false sense of shame, false guilt, things that were never their responsibility. Um, but, but they're wearing these ashes um, because of it. Um, and he's going to remove those ashes and, and just you know, anoint them with oil of joy. Um, they're wearing these garments of mourning and he's going to give them garments of praise instead. Yeah, because he is this, he, he, he's a Lord that loves justice. And that's, that's part of justice is saying, like, this is, where the, the, this is where the blame lies. And so sometimes, yeah, it's going to be removing false senses of blame and guilt from people, Help, helping them move from feeling shame to saying, no, I didn't deserve that, to, to move from that sense of humiliation, like, I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve to be treated that way. And I, I think we can receive that today, but even for people that have bore that all their life until they died, like, I think when they stand before the throne, they're going to have that, that, hum, that false sense of shame um, taken away in Jesus and said, you were humiliated and unjustly. Um, and then there's this third, besides the refined gold, um, besides, the, besides the cleansed cloth, we're being cleansed of, these, of our guilt or, or false guilt or shame. Um, a third image, uh, and this is one of my favorite ones, comes from John 15. Um, you guys know when Jesus talks about being the vine. Um, he says, I am the true vine, I'm the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. And then in verse 3, this, this is the New Living Translation, they say, you have all already been pruned and purified. Because, yeah, the, the word that's used there, sometimes it says cleaned, it's the word that's, that's so often used for purity or purified um, in the New Testament. But he's realizing in the context of a vine, it's pruned and purified. Um, by the message I have given you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot bear fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. 
And so here's Jesus talking to his disciples. Think about some of his disciples. You know, you have Simon the tax or you have Simon the zealot. You have Matthew the tax collector. Um, you have James and John, these uh, sons of thunder. Uh, when, and so he, he comes and he takes these, these people, tangled messes of a vine, and he loves them and he spends three years pruning and purifying them uh, through his message, through the Sermon on the Mount, um, through the Beatitudes, um, yeah, and just, just teaching different things, through the parable of the Good Samaritan. And just through these parables, he's, he's taking these tangled messes of vines and he's pruning them, pruning them, pruning them so they can be these fruitful branches um, when they're abiding in him. And, it, and that, which is like the exact opposite of the, a lot of the messages we heard, uh, these purity illustrations that we heard. In those illustrations, you have something that starts off good and slowly, because it can't follow the law, becomes worse and worse and worse. Um, in these purity illustrations, you have something that doesn't necessarily start off, doesn't start off 100% good, like gold still has value, but you've also, and we've still, got, we've always, we're all born with that image of God. Um, but you've also got the dross mixed in, and we also are all born with that sinful nature. But then by putting yourselves in the hand of that master goldsmith, um, the dross is removed, the dirt is removed until you become this pure and refined gold. And so there's this whole process. Um, so, you have, yeah, so you have his disciples that he's, he's doing this pruning and this purifying process on. Um, he also reached out to women. There was the woman at the well. There was the woman caught in adultery. Um, after his message pruned and purified Mary, the sister of Martha, she took this uh, pint of expensive perfume and she poured it out on Jesus' feet. And that's a story that's still bearing fruit today. Oh, yeah. um, so he, he took Mary and he turned her into this fruitful branch that's still today, everywhere the gospel's preached, people are hearing her story and it's bearing fruit as well. Um, but even after he ascended into heaven, it didn't stop. Um, you know, he, con- he continued uh, through the message of the disciples to call and prune and purify people. And one of those people was Paul. Um, who would continually boast of Christ's purifying work in his life. He writes this letter to Timothy, um, and in Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So Christ didn't come into the world you know, to, to save perfect roses and to make sure that they never lost a petal. Christ came in sometimes to f- take those stems and to graft them into the vine so that they could have a new growth and become a fruitful branch. Uh, for this very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And he, he showed this immense patience three years with his disciples, um, pruning and purifying them. So now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, he, he also writes to another one of the pastors he's training, Titus. And this he's not just applying to himself, but to many of the people that got saved um, after Christ ascended. He said, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteousness, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit 
whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So he's saying, you know, Titus, you know, you and the church that you're ministering to, you know, we were once full of dross. We were once full of stains. We were once tangled messes. But he refined, he cleansed, he pruned and purified us to make us who we are today. And then he, he writes a whole letter to the Galatians defending the purifying power of the gospel. Um, because the Galatians had this problem, I think that, that purity culture sometimes is brought into the, the church um, where they, they, um, they were starting to turn back to the law. And I, I think that's what sometimes purity culture did. Like we would talk about how we were saved. Of course we're saved by grace through Jesus Christ, except you know, when it comes to sexual things and sexual morality and sexual ethics, then you really have to work hard to maintain your own purity. It was sometimes the message of, uh, like there was something we had to add to the gospel was the message that we would see in, um, in some of the purity talks that I remember getting as a youth. Um, so yeah, right after he greets them, um, Paul says to the Galatian church, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes that's what, that's what some of these purity talks did. They perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. We had to add something to the blood of Jesus. We had to add, um, yeah, 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 we had to add like our own uh, morality. Um, because there were these things that could stain us and just make us useless. Uh, he, he says then in chapter 3, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like you to learn just one, I would, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit you are now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by you believing what you heard? So also Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, so this, this is another big problem yeah, with the illustrations you might have heard in Purity Talk. They, they illustrate, a, like not only that they can lead to shame, but it's just, it's a false gospel. Uh, it's a false means of sal- a salvation that's maintained by law. Maybe we receive it by grace, but then we have to maintain it um, by lo- according to the law rather than received by grace through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, so I want you guys to think about your own story. Like, you know, it didn't just happen with the disciples. It didn't just happen with uh, Mary and the woman at the well. It didn't just happen with Paul and Titus and Timothy. But I, I know in my own life, it's happened. You know, I, I didn't come out of my, my mom's womb, you know, just perfect. I haven't spent my life trying to maintain that perfection. Uh, yeah, but there's, there's just been a lot of patience on God's part where sin's crept in and, and he's pruned and purified me. Um, yeah, but um, even, yeah, I remember, like, yeah, so I, I mean, I probably heard, first heard this talk when I was in junior high. Um, but, yeah, I remember when I was about four years old, there, I was playing with this other kid and this kid wanted to play some, some curious games with me. I don't know if you guys ever had that experience, but yeah, like, and, um, and yeah, and so by the time I heard these talks, I was already like, well, am I already like disqualified? Like, is there any hope now, like, because of uh, some of these games that I played when I was a kid? Um, and yeah, and, and yeah, there's just like, yeah, like a, a lot of shame, like, is, and then, yeah, so I, there were t- nights where I'm just like, all right, like just crying out to God, like, is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for me? You know, can I be, can I be pure? Have I, or is it like, yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, like, you know, just, I don't know if you guys ever had weird theologies you came up with, with as, as children or youth, um, but yeah, like, like, just trying to figure out, like, so is it, is there kind of like a, a line you don't cross, and so maybe I'm kind of impure, but I haven't crossed that line where I'm completely hopeless yet, and so God, like, please just keep me from whatever that line is crossing it, because I know I'm not completely pure, um, but I don't want to be this stem that gets thrown away. You know, I don't want to be these poop brownies that get thrown away. Um, and, and so, yeah, just trying to, like, figure out, like, what do I have to do? Because um, I was getting so confused by um, these purity talks. Um, and, yeah, and to, to realize, like, you know, what Christ on the cross is enough. Um, you know, what, whatever I did as a youth, um, you know, yeah, whatever sins in my youth, like, Christ can wash those clean as well. Um, yeah, that, that's been extremely freeing. Um, and so, like, as we're, as we're sharing our own stories, as we're sharing the gospel with other people, um, we, we need to tell stories that paint word pictures of being purified and like, acknowledge the process rather than of being pure. I think, I think sometimes that's the criticism like, of the church is that, oh, we're just these pure stained glass Christians. We've never done anything wrong and I could never live up to anyway, so why try? Um, there was a guy, John Fisher, he was one of the early contemporary Christian musicians and he says, uh, the message that we need to be getting across to the world today um, yeah, the, the, what we need to be telling them is how much we need Jesus. Yes, the pronoun is correct, though we may have been thinking that we need to tell the world how much they need Jesus. Our new job as recovering Pharisees is to show and tell the world how much we need Jesus. He says, yeah, if, if we're always trying to just prove that we're better than other people according to the law, that puts us in the company of Pharisees, John Fisher says. You know, but, but if we're acknowledging that we're sinners saved by grace, I, you know, that, 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 puts us in, that, that puts us in the company with the, the ones that Christ has redeemed, the ones that have been saved. You know, are, are we telling stories um, yeah, where, where we, of a process where there was dross in our life, there were, where we were tangled messes of vines at times, where we didn't always have the answers, but through wrestling and through prayer and through community, you know, God poured his grace out in our lives and did a purifying work in our own lives? Or, or is our story always yeah, just that we've, we've been pure? And there's, there's not really much of a story. We've just been pure and we've maintained it by because we don't drink, smoke, or chew or date the girls who do. Um, we need to, yeah, so examine your own testimony. How have you been purified of guilt? How have you been purified of shame? How have you been, uh, how, how, how have you been purified of humiliation where, where sometimes God's real, pointed out to you like that wasn't your fault? You've been able to say, no, I didn't deserve that and just be able to re- relieve, like, yeah, just have that, burden of shame lifted off of you um, and, and yeah, just experience freedom in Christ um, be, because he pointed that out. Uh, even examine your current faith. You know, Paul was writing to the Galatians, so this had come into the church. When Jesus was preaching about this refined fire and this, this, this white cloth, he's preaching the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. So both of these messages are to the church because they have a problem with, there's a problem within the church. Um, yeah, so are, are you applying the purifying go- power of the gospel to maybe to guilt, to shame, to humiliation in your life today? Uh, there's this old hymn. Uh, goes, it's called, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? The very first verse says, Have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? And that's the question I want you guys to think about um, uh, as we close today. That's, that's one of the two questions. Have you ever been to Jesus for his cleansing power or have you always just been trying in your own effort, trying to figure out, okay, how do I make myself good enough? Maybe how do I make, maybe, maybe you've been thinking like there's a scale. How do I make the scale um, so that there's more good than bad 
or you know, how, how do I not cross that line? How do I put enough good deeds that I haven't crossed that line where I'm hopeless? Now, if that's you, I, I want you to say, I want to encourage you, come to Jesus for his cleansing power today. Now, it also asks a second question in the first verse. It says, are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? You know, are, are there things going on in your life today? Is there guilt that your sense of guilt you're experiencing that you're trying to just hide? Is there a sense of shame, a sense of humiliation that you've been wrestling with in your life um, you know, today, this past week, this past month, um, that you need to bring to Jesus for his cleansing power today. Not deal with it like the Galatians according to the law, but just remember that we have the purifying power of the gospel. You know, we have this master goldsmith that wants to refine us. We have this strong-handed launderer that wants to wash our stains out. You know, and we have um, this, this vine dresser who wants to take tangled messes of vines and prune and purify them until they're fruitful branches. Um, so as, as we go into this last song, I want you to be thinking about those questions. And is there anything that you need to bring um, to be washed in the blood of the Lamb this morning?